Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Florence Wambugu, who grew up on a sweet potato farm in Kenya and went on to become a world expert in plant biotechnology, talks about the contribution of biotechnology, including GM crops, for improving the sustainable livelihoods of resource-poor families in Africa. Well, um, <coughs> good morning, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, today, uh, it's my pleasure to welcome uh, Florence Wambugi from, uh, from Kenya, who's going to give us a special uh, public lecture. Um, you can see the title there, but um, since we are being recorded, uh, I'll, I'll just read it out. The contribution of biotechnology, including GM crops, for improving the sustainable livelihoods of resource-poor farmers in Africa is, is what Florence will talk to us about. Um, I think it's fairly sa safe to say that Florence has come a long way from uh, her beginnings in a rural farm in Kenya. Um, from there she went to the University of Nairobi where she did um, a BSc in Biological Sciences. And then she joined the Kenya Agricultural uh, Service. Um, and she gained a master's in plant pathology before uh, coming to, to Bath University where she did um, a PhD with the late uh, Graham Henshaw. From here she moved to the United States uh, where she did a postdoctoral fellowship with, with Monsanto. And from there she returned to, to Kenya and amongst other things she established and is now CEO of Africa Harvest Biotechnology Foundation International. Um, which has received grants from such organizations as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And it works on such projects as the Super Sorghum um, project, which is aimed at producing new varieties with elevated levels of iron and zinc and vitamins, which will, will be tailored for uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. So it's my pleasure to welcome uh, Florence to give her lecture. Oh, thank you very much. I, it's an honor for me to be back here after now how many years? I left in 1991, so almost 20 years. I, sh I thought I sh should bring a few photos. I looked at my album and I realized how time has changed. So it's like stepping back in history. I've seen a lot of positive changes at the university. There's been a lot of growth and um, um, it's really a few honor to be back here and I'm, I'm really grateful. Um, let me say that um, my search for science which has taken me across here in America and all that, I've uh, been motivated by a belief that science should make a contribution uh, to the lives of the common people, uh, including my own humble beginnings in the rural Africa. And from a young girl, when I was, I was growing up, uh, many times I was hungry, uh, and not me alone, but people around me. I came from a family of 10. I was number six, and I didn't still have memories of fighting with my brothers. I've got six brothers and three sisters uh, fighting over food and sleeping hungry. And as I, I, just, I, I believe, and I still do, that... Uh, science could improve the production of food uh, and that's why I pursued a career in science. I was very passionate about especially crop protection. I always remember going to the, to the garden with my mother and I'd try to fight all the, the bugs. I would mix in soil and sometimes some ashes and whatever, try to fight them because I, I thought they were taking a big chunk of our food and there was really not no way to control them. And um, even as I pursued my career in with the Kenya Agriculture Research Institute after my university degree, I was looking at how I could uh, still link up science with productivity and especially crop protection. And uh, even when I came to Bath again, my desire was to work on solutions, and that's why I was pursuing a plant virology career. Especially, I realized the whole area of virology control of special virus diseases uh, took a lot of yield, in, especially because of the 
the, 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 the systems of having um, uh, good weather throughout the year, so there's no blinking of the disease cycle, as I realized. Actually, I came here to look. I, was, I carried my project with me on sweet potatoes, uh, which I'll not talk about today, but really what I'll talk about is principles that still works. Um, so again, my, my research project here was on the control of sweet potato virus. I worked with the Professor Lit, Professor Graham Hamcho, and a professor from in, uh, Little Hampton called Aaron Brandt, who was working on sweet potato virus. And uh, um, I, it was a kind of a spirit program. I wanted to do something that would help people back home. And I didn't think staying in bus for three and a half years, I was going to find the solution. So we, we kind of organized a spirit program when I go back home and do this, the, the epidemiology and do characterization of the virus and design ways to control the sweet potato virus. And um, I did two years field work in Kenya, in Uganda, in Tanzania, trying to look at how we can increase the productivity by control of the viruses by using the certified seed system that works here so well. And um, unfortunately, at the end of my PhD work, I realized what is working here so well won't work in Africa. The reason being that the weather is so different. The winter you have here breaks the disease cycle, especially aphids and white flies and all that. And back in Kenya or back in Africa, the good weather we have is not good when it comes to crop protection because the insects are active throughout the year and they are continuously perpetuating the disease. And so the certified seed system our system, the rate of infection was so high that within two years, the whole crops are infected again, especially banana, cassava, sweet potatoes, perennial crops. And um, um, the farmers also realized the cultural practice. In Africa, we believe in sharing and giving seeds. We believe that giving seeds is like uh, is something that is culturally very, very good. Uh, I don't think farmers here give each other seed. They go to buy seeds from companies or the certified seed systems. In Africa, we actually, um, farmers give each other cuttings. And by giving cuttings, they're actually perpetuating the disease from one farm to another. And changing cultural practice is very, very difficult. And at this time, when I graduated here in 1991, I heard of this or learned of this through my own director who had sent me here to learn from Kenya Agriculture Research Institute of this new technology called genetic engineering where you can actually vaccinate the plants in a way they develop resistance and so you can actually give the cuttings and that you don't have to worry. <laughs> I was working on sweet potato and I thought this is interesting. and. Um, if there's this technology which can make plants kind of immune or at least vaccinated or in a way they can actually uh, be able to not spread the virus, I thought this would be the next thing I need to learn about. And so, as I said, and I'm going to give uh, my talk, my background into getting to genetic engineering was simply to learn more about this new technology which can actually help the farmers uh, back home who cannot read and write and who are not benefiting from the whole area of pesticide control. They can't afford the pesticide. They are not able to, to read and write or mix them or do them in the right way. So if this way of getting uh, um, crops that are, are protected internally, the farmers know how to handle the seeds. So I think there's a good way. This has a potential for uh, the millions of smallholder farmers we have because they know how to handle the seed, but they don't know how to handle a lot of other things. And so that was the genesis of my getting into this highly controversial area of uh, genetic technology. And I thought I should give you that, that background. And um, so I'll share with you what had been my experience. And of course, I did go to America for three years. I did learn after here, genetic, I, I got involved with the sweet potato. And I did return back, because my interest was always to learn and go back and try to put into practice what I learned in universe of birth and what I learned anywhere else. I believe the science solutions can make a contribution back home. And uh, I believe even up to now, uh, that's 
a hypothesis that is proven. Every country that been able to have sustainable agriculture have used science and technology. They have always proud taken what is research coming from university and taking it to the farmers. The farmers are linked to the scientific discoveries that really solve the issues uh, in, their, in, in, in what they're doing on day to day. Um, and certain the CG systems was set to do that. I don't know whether I should use that key. Okay. So Africa Harvest was born out of a vision. Uh, I realized uh, that um, there was a gap between the whole knowledge and getting the technology to, to, to be active. I say to develop the legs so it is working on the ground and being practiced by the people. And that was the motivation to add value to other organizations, like international centers. They're doing great research, but to take it to the communities or to link it to the farmers, even national research institutions. And so what we're doing in Africa Harvest, as you see, is to actually add value, network, collaborate, and not necessarily reinvent the wheel. So the, our vision in Africa Harvest is to Africa free of hunger, malnutrition, and poverty. We believe that will probably happen one day. And it's still happening. We're making little progress. But I think we're moving in the right direction. The use of science and technology, uh, especially about technology to help the poor in Africa achieve food security, economic well-being, and sustainable rural development. And um, we don't believe science or biotechnology alone can do this. It's within the complex area of uh, of, of technology and management and inputs and, and policy and all that. It's not a silver bullet. Uh, we are non-for-profit international. We have offices in the USA. We are non-for-profit, Kenya, South Africa. And we have also got satellite offices in, uh, in, uh, in other, a few other countries. Uh, our long-term strategic research, in we, we believe that... Um, to achieve our vision and mission, we have long-term goals, and that probably is what's going to resolve some of the serious issues we have in Africa. We need long-term strategic research, but we also have short-term focused deliverables now because people are hungry now. You can't be telling people who are hungry now, 10 years, we shall give you a product. We really need to have long-term strategic research. You know, if this country, there is a flood, you don't go hungry. If there's a drought, you don't go hungry. Why? Because we've done long-term strategic research. There's so much reserve, there's so much knowledge that you can overcome the challenges that come every day. But what we have in Africa is a very fragile situation where there's a flood, people go hungry. If there's a famine, people go hungry because there's not been long-term strategic research. And here, I believe science and technology, we should be doing the long term as well as the short term. And um, so in Africa Harvest, we are doing those two, uh, we are focusing on those two areas, uh, long term strategic research, knowing that we can't really solve all the problem in Africa, but we can set examples from our learning, from what we learned here, from what we learned somewhere, we can set some examples which can be duplicated. Uh, we can also, uh, number two, have short-term uh, deliverables on how to take this technology to the grassroots communities. So we are carrying on long-term strategic research uh, using genetic engineering uh, through a consortium based, and we show an example of that. We don't have one institution in Africa that has got all the facilities and infrastructure and the capacity. So collaborating and networking is the way forward and linking up with institutions elsewhere. And short term, we shall give you an example of a tissue culture banana project that last year won one of the international awards in Oslo called the Yellow Award because of the impact we have had over, with over half a million smallholder farmers. And this project has been picked by NEPAD, by AGRA for scaling up across Africa. You know, just the project, the strategies we have developed. Africa Harvest has got four programs. We have got the technical program, which is implementing the projects like the, the SOGAM for nutrition enhancement. We believe in capacity building and technology transfer. Uh, we believe communication is power. If you don't know, you can't have what you don't know, communication for development. That's a program which is being implemented by my colleague who came with me, Daniel, Daniel Kamanga, who is there. His position is South Africa, and that's why uh, that program is based. 
and of course finance new development, a whole strong infrastructure capacity to help the growth of the organization. Because the organization is growing very fast. We started seven years ago with one person we are 40, they have about six PhDs involved in very vigorous program and we are growing at a very high rate. And so a strong institutional structure is very important. Uh, we have got an international board of directors, which is very, very important because the board is the one which creates the institution of tomorrow. Our former chairman, Dr. Kanayo Nwanzi, is now the president of IFAD. So he has just stepped down because as a president of IFAD, he could not continue sharing the board because we're getting some money from IFAD to avoid conflict of interest. Uh, Mary McKay from Canada, there's a member of board from Kenya. David Faber works with partner at Boggs Law Firm, we incorporated in US to show we are compliant. Uh, Dr. Giselle Demaida, she's an entrepreneur from Senegal, uh, Prudence, South Africa. And the is another lawyer from US who is our, our, our secretary, Carlo Kavok, used to work with IBM uh, in their life science. And uh, so organization has got a very strong um, international leadership. Um, where are the hungry in the world? I think that's a question, you know. Sometimes when you live in an environment like you have in Europe, in UK, the word hunger sometimes gets very far. Unless you're involved in international. And of course it does come into a computer at home when you have all those pictures of people hungry and starving. But it's always good to ask where are the hungry in the world? As, and uh, from this FAO uh, source statistic, you can see they are hungry people in the world. And uh, these are people, some of them have what you call silent hunger, meaning they are nourished, they become vulnerable. Uh, China is vigorously reducing the hungry people, but they are still there. I'll tell you that. I was in China in May. We still have some hungry people, poor people, but they are working very hard to reduce their numbers. And my focus today will be on the sub Saharan Africa, this part of the, the pie. Uh, we've got about 200 million people. Africa is 800 million people. A quarter of these. Uh, which is about 200 million are hungry, and 20 million on food aid, and among these include children. And um, why? Of uh, course, we have got climate and soils. There's nothing wrong with the African climate and soils. In fact, people from Israel, when they come to Africa, they say, well, there's nowhere in Africa you can't produce food, so your climate and soils are okay, uh, because they're producing and exporting from literally a desert. So there's nothing wrong, although we have some desert, we still have our climate and soils, there's nothing wrong to justify the hunger and starvation in Africa. Uh, we have a large human disease load, um, some of them communicable HIV AIDS, is still a big toy in Africa. We can really say we do have problem of poor policies and poor governance, um, and that's take a lot of toil. Large rural inland population, I think that's a challenge which we haven't really thought very, very well. Um, many people believe the power of the UK was because of the sea. You're able to get to the sea and access to the sea, but use the sea to have a, what I call a global empire. The sea is very powerful. But even the African countries with the sea are still in problems. So, but um, the, there's a lot of inland, uh, but even the ones in the sea are not making too much use of that. Very little irrigation. 5% only of irrigation. Uh, the, 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 the risk of waiting for the rain, if rain doesn't come, all the crops die. Uh, there is a lot of water heading to the sea, actually. If you look about, think about this basin here, the Congo Basin and all that, we haven't really used our levers. We haven't even used the underground water. Irrigation, very, very limited irrigation. Only, I think, Egypt that has been able to irrigate and use the power of water and uh, lack of irrigation. And if you're not, it's, it's, it's very, very risky uh, to farm without any assurance of water. And with a global climatic change, it's getting even worse. And uh, I would say that limited resources, Africa has the least use of fertilizer. And uh, some people from Europe say that is bad, you know, you shouldn't use fertilizer. But I'll tell you what, you can't produce without fertilizer. So fertility is a must. And I'm sure I'm talking to the converted scientists know that. But there are some environmentalists who are saying you shouldn't use any fertilizer at all. Well, you know, you can't produce much out of that. Uh, low impact of green revolution, the 
power of change that happened in Asia 50 years ago haven't happened in Africa. We're still talking about it. Now, some of the environmental dangers or deterioration out of this, to produce more food, people are cutting down forests, slash and burn, and then water, drying of livers, drying of some water catchment areas. And um, I agree with this quote from Norman Bollock. Nobody can be an environmentalist with an empty stomach. If you're hungry, you cut the tree because the tree gives you firewood or you sell. So to preach to people to be an environmentalist, you need to provide. And so it needs to be more holistic than just in telling people don't plant, the, don't, don't cut the trees. Uh, trends in African food demand. There has been enormous change since 1994. Uh, by the way, Africa was food secure. 19, 1964, Africa was food secure, more or less. The population and the food were almost balanced. Deficit one million, what's that? Now I come to 1999, because of the population increase, the demand has gone to 15 million tons. Now we are, produce, uh, we are projecting by 2015, uh, we'll be talking about 20 million tons of food have been imported, and there's not enough much money to import that. I believe uh, the list on China has come up very strongly is that not only have they increased or their productivity, that is powerful family planning and population control, one child per family. I'm not saying it's good or bad, I'm just saying they were able to keep the population down and to lift the economics of the country. We have continued the population increase and the economy hasn't matched some of the challenges. So there need to be more holistic approach to those issues. But I'm going to focus on agriculture. What I'm mentioning, there are bigger issues than just one. However, if agriculture was done well, it could probably become the regional economic growth and pull, pull things in the right direction. Agriculture, many, many of the politicians, they're very good on talking about this. They say agriculture is the regional economic growth in Africa because most people are farmers. South Africa has some mines, okay, Nigeria has some oil, but I can tell you that as a solve the situation. Basically, Africa is a, is a farming continent. And uh, we do have a lot of sunshine. When I was a student in, uh, in Fargo, North Dakota, I was surprised to see they measure their productivity by how much sunshine they are going to get. And, uh, and, and, and here we have sunshine, <laughs> too much of it. And it, it doesn't mean we're going to produce. So there's still a link to science into those things. And, and so there is low priority given to the agriculture sector. National budgets, okay, we have put too much pressure through NEPAD, through all kinds of forums. The African heads of state have agreed to put 10% of their, of their growth, uh, domestic growth, um, finance into agriculture. Only seven countries so far has, have done it since 10 years of pressure. So they're still putting very little and expecting much. So there is what the government has to do, put money in R&D, but link R&D to productivity. Of course, infrastructures, uh, communication, education, health and infrastructure, foods also are from agriculture. Internal barriers and external barriers to trade. I'm sure you are aware that there has been a, a feeling that Africa is being locked out uh, by European Union from accessing the markets. There are more regulations being made. There's more fortification allowed to you. There was a lot of trade going on, but every time there are new rules to, 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 to form this kind of barriers. And um, the discussion of external trade have been going on, the Doha, the where, you know, demos, of course, activists have also joined that. I don't even know where we are going with WTO and where we are. But um, I think the big picture about that is uh, very little coming out of the products of Africa because they are not processed. If it's coffee, it's tea, it's cocoa, it's always sold as raw material. And that's an old colonial legacy where Africa was supposed to produce raw materials, but the processing, the value adding, where the money is, is done elsewhere. And that takes a lot of jobs and the money, the, the big money goes out. Of course, I also learned here that farmers are also in the same area that I understand farmers don't get enough. It is the supermarkets who make a lot of the money, so it can also happen elsewhere. Uh, of course, poor access to the rich country markets. 
Well, we are having a Goa market, but the question I was asking, uh, two weeks ago we were in World Economic Forum in, uh, in Cape Town talking about trade, but what is it that we can export to America? Let's say the market is open. What are we going to export? So I don't see that as a big, big thing unless we really have things we can export. Are we exporting flowers to Europe? We're exporting uh, French beans and all that. But uh, unless we can do the value adding of our, our made crops like coffee and tea and all that, we still can't make much out of agriculture. And then we have the nutritional burden and the effects of human capital. Um, yes. Uh, why the need for rapid technology innovations and interventions in Africa? Of course, the declining per capita ad size. There's more more the, the, there is still the same large but growing population. Um, frequent droughts due to the climatic change. The climatic change is affecting the situation in Africa. Inadequate disease-free planting materials. Definitely, that's an area of very passionate about crop protection. Um, goes to the control of disease and pests, inputs, raw technologies. But another very contentious issue here is about subsidies. Uh, farmers in Africa are the only ones who are, don't subs are not subsidized. And that's why the whole area of trade becomes very complicated because um, they are competing with the EU farmers who are heavily subsidized, American farmers are heavily subsidized, African farmers have little subsidies. But one country that has tried to try and change the situation is Malawi, which very few people are talking about, where the country has turned around and started to subsidize their farmers for fertilizer and seeds and all that. And for three years, they are now out of hunger. So it's, there are complex situations, but there are trades that can be looked at. Now, I want to get back to the interesting area of GM technology, which will all I think they can do. And one area that one, one person who has been sending information that some people want to hear, others don't want to hear, is the whole area of GM technology and what is happening and uh, what contribution can this make to the African, uh, to the African farmers. And uh, when you, we look at this trade, of course, uh, we shall see what's going on in Africa. Uh, there are more and more countries getting involved in this, uh, in the GM technology, uh, trades, hectares, industrial countries, um, developing countries are catching up when, it, when the whole technology started. Uh, everybody was looking at it as something like it's just for Europe, it's US and this, but you can see more countries are getting involved. If you look at South Africa, there are four, the four crops being commercialized in South Africa, cotton, maize, soya bean. Egypt has just commercialized uh, maize protected with the BT for insect and pest. Burkina Faso has commercialized uh, cotton. And the uh, rest of Africa is kind of empty. But I'll tell you, there's a lot of field trials going on. And of course, the biosafety is, development is going on. We don't have a country called Africa. There are many countries, and each one of them has to make a decision on how they want to go. But uh, I think this is a train that has left the station and moving very, very fast. Look at the treats. Moving on, so hectares are moving on. Uh, industrial countries, of course, are ahead, but the developing countries' trade are also going up. And this you can look in the ISA website, the latest information we have. You can probably see all this, it's quite far, but what, what this try to show you the business around it, it's not about GM crops, it's about business. Uh, there is money in this business, and there's money being made out of this. And uh, you can see it's no longer one. Uh, it's no longer U.S. Uh, with the one companies. There's a whole mix. There's a lot of dynamics, and everybody starts to get a piece of the pie of, of this technology. You can get more in our website if you want to look at that. But this is important because it shows that the crops that are being globally improved or traded are crops mainly focused on the developed countries where the big market are, because it's a very costly technology. And this intellectual properties are locked up by big companies. And so you have like four major crops, the soya bean, cotton, maize, and, and canola. And the maize is yellow maize, which is used 
uh, uh, used uh, mainly in the developed countries. Although, uh, so far we have white maize in South Africa for food and also white maize in uh, Egypt for food. And there's more white maize for food coming on board, but the first crop of maize was not was 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 yellow maize, and and so we ask ourselves, uh, if this technology is moving very fast, how can it benefit us? In in areas, it's not going to come from these crops. It's going to come from, I believe, Africans working on their own crops, and um, certainly you can see the situation in Africa. There's more dynamics than probably you know from here. There, there is commercialization going on there. If you look at the yellow, most of these countries yellow do have some interim biosafety frameworks. Uh, this is a work in progress. Uh, we just uh, to update this because in Kenya we got our biosafety framework or biosafety law in now in in February this year. We can actually trade. Uh, there's a lot of like three crops waiting to move in. Um, I move from there and say, why are we working on sorghum? Sorghum is important in Africa. Uh, if you look at this information here, you see that compared to maize and even cassava, and I'm saying that if we are going to benefit from this technology, we have to get Africans networking or partnering with the universities, with the research institution, institutions, to work for African crops and improve them. It's not going to be done for us by private sector companies. They can donate technology, they can share information, but they don't see the African market as significant. And so they're not going to put all their efforts there. But Africans can actually work on this and look, focus on areas of interest and improve their crops. And we believe that's the way forward and that's the way it is happening. So the companies are not going to work on sorghum. Uh, they're working on canola, on soybean, on cotton and all that. It's upon us to, to look at a crop like that, which is very important in Africa. You can see some countries. Compared to maize, it's more important there. If, you know. So look at a crop that's important, it's strategic, um, and work on it. I know cassava is important in some countries. So cassava is being worked on. Uh, bananas um, is being worked on. In Asia, it's rice uh, is being worked on. And so that's why we're working on sorghum. So, Africa Harvest is uh, spearheading uh, a big uh, uh, focus on sorghum, on nutrition enhancement. The reason we are doing it is because there is malnutrition in Africa, and uh, most of the areas where malnutrition is is also where there is uh, the poor rural communities. They are not able to uh, to buy fortified food from supermarkets. They get their food, they grow their sorghum, and eat it, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They don't have the meat and the veggies and all that, or the supplements. Sometimes it's amazing how people think, why can't they buy the tablets? Why can't they eat the veggies? That's not the reality on the ground if you go to a country like Burkina. People, or you go to some countries in Asia, people eat rice for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner, and they don't go to the supermarket to buy fortified rice. They don't have the money. And those realities are sometimes we have to communicate them to people who literally don't know this. Because when I used to tell people that the supermarket when I was growing up was some sweet potatoes behind uh, our house where we had to go and dig and boil and eat. That's the supermarket behind the house. as not somewhere in uh, <laughs> the thing. Oh, what are you talking about? Yeah. So the reality on the ground in the developing country is quite different. These are teenagers, small teenagers. They look like adults. They are not children. They are chronically malnutrited. I took this photo. Some of them are 18. These are small adults. Chronic malnutrition. Stunting uh, inhibits their growth. You can see some of their lips. It's, this is Leo. And uh, there is potential in nutritional enhancement. So we are focusing on sorghum. It's the fifth most important grain. It's, it's the center of origin in Africa, but only two countries, Sudan and uh, Ethiopia, not the whole of Africa. There may be some centers of diversity. It's a cereal. It's very important for arid and semi-arid tropics. It's a staple food or used by over 300 million people. So we can really focus on a bigger crop like this. It can have a mega impact. 
mostly consumed as pollage or also in other ways, but it's a crop that nutrition enhancement could make a major, especially in the whole of Sahel, uh, major delivery of nutrients. However, it's low in protein, quality, uh, digestibility, uh, and when you cook, even holds the nutrients even more. Lysine is also iron and zinc. It does have iron and zinc, but they are tied up. They don't get released. And uh, it has really no, we have screened lots and lots of variety. There's no, there's no vitamin, uh, there's no vitamin A. Very, very little, there's only one variety with very little vitamin A. So we are doing it for the good reasons, not just because we want to work on GM technology. And traditional methods can't work if you don't to do this kind of thing we are doing. Uh, now, let's remember that to get a product is very different from, uh, to get a product uh, into the market involves a lengthy period, a lot of work, starting from the lab, greenhouse, few trials, more work to see what's going on in the field, whether the traits you see they are stable, until you have a product you can release. It's, it's not a, you know, people, uh, the, the GM technology is not a quick fix. A little lengthy, it's expensive, it takes time, it involves a lot of work and, and a lot of focus. And I'm emphasizing this because um, uh, we need to get the right perspective of why we don't have probably products coming from the public domain, why, why crops are only coming from private sector. It's expensive. The discovery alone, the proof of concept, you need 20 million to do the proof, maybe the proof of concept. Now the product development path, the regulatory system to take one crop, you need about 10 million to be able to regulate one crop like that. However, you can use that to back cross. Uh, and, uh, and, and then if you are going to do product development, we are talking another maybe 30 million. A budget of 100 million to be able to get that there. But you know, once you get there, you have got a global product. That's why the private sector have been able to go align with these products. Uh, so there's a lot of research going on in, in, in some universities and research center, but we still don't have products coming from public domain. And I believe there's the cost, the focus that's needed through this system here. Uh, in terms of the dynamics, because right now I'm involved and we are involved in Africa Harvest in championing or this uh, nutrition enhancement of sorghum. There's a lot of dynamics involved to getting a product. And of course, it's not in one place. It's a consortium of nine institutions that I'll show you, universities, public institutions. We have to look along uh, the technology development, uh, testing the proof of concept, adaptively search where breeders now come in, uh, product development. And here looking at agronomic traits, if we had ricin, is the mirroring characteristics of sorghum still important, as they're still there. We don't alter the sorghum. And finally, dissemination, distribution, and marketing. Now, then along the line, there's laboratory research going on the discovery, there's a field work, intellectual property licensing, who owns the, the genes and all that, so that we shall finally commercialize. There's the regulatory and biosafety, which is going across. All the way first, you have to do the track and check that you're not using somebody else's IP. Uh, and if you have, they have donated them or they agree that you can commercialize. Um, then, uh, so biosafety, nutritional enhancement, we are still checking, for example, are the nutrients still there? Are they bioavailable? What about the quantities? I'm sure you have the story of the golden rice when they started. Uh, there was this slogan that you need to eat 20 kilos to get the vitamin. <laughs> we make sure that we don't have sorghum where you need to eat 10 tons to get the nutrients. You only need to eat enough. So we do, you have to balance the science with the realities on the ground. Communication for development. You can't really, uh, if you're working with a GM crop, you better know how to communicate and not just to the, with the people who are against, even people who are for, because people want information. People must know, they have light to know, and you have to give information. You can't close the door and do this work. Uh, deployment, how do we get the product out there? You know, that comes in phase two. For example, Sorghum, we are now heading to the phase two. So you can see, we're thinking about it, developing the pathways, but it's coming in phase two. And then management and coordination. Research for it to deliver must have a strong management unit, management and coordination.
Um, for example, in Asogam, we got definitely we need to give uh, the technology development, the proof of concept. We got technology about five million worth of technology donation from DuPont Pioneer in the US. We had the University of California Berkeley working on the SOGAM transformation system. It was very poor. We had to improve that. Uh, CSIR is Council for Scientific and Industrial Research in South Africa. So we have a team there just working on the discovery, the proof of concept. All trying different methods and the one which works, the push forward. And uh, some were trying agrobacterium using patented technology from Japan, UC Berkeley, and, and see some trying particle gun, discovery of DuPont. So there has to be a team. One isolated scientist in the corner of the lab will never be able to get a product out. There has to be a team. And what works moves forward. Then the product development team, ICRISAT is a CG center which has, has been coordinating or is able to look at the jamprasim, the gene bank, and we're using the right varieties. Uh, which are going to be suitable for areas of Africa at the National Agriculture Research Centers for greenhouse and field work and um, Universal Pretoria. Then you have got Universal Pretoria is focusing on the, uh, the food technology because finally people will not eat the genes, they eat the food. How will it be eaten? What is the bioavailability of this food? In which, how do the people in West Africa eat their sorghum? How people in Kenya or in, in, in uh, Sadak countries eat their sorghum? So the food technology aspects must be right. And then enabling and development, uh, Africa Agriculture Technology Foundation is intellectual property brokering, advocacy. So it's a whole teamwork. And it must all work as, is a virtual institution. So this, this is a team that's involved in this project. And we have a manager. We have one manager who is managing the consortium, two planning meetings in a year, making sure we are all talking face-to-face. -face. But there's a lot of teleconferencing every month. But two times in a year, we have to meet and plan. Now, the traits and targets, we have clear targets and traits. We're improving digestibility. And... Um, also looking at it after you cook, that was one of the targets. The other one was the amino acids. We are focusing more on ricin, although others are still there, but amino acid, we're focusing more on ricin, but the others have also come on board. Vitamin E, we have dropped. The reason being many people feel it doesn't have any benefits. Uh, Pro-vitamin A, very important. We are targeting that. In sorghum, it's purely very, very low. It's not there. Uh, increase iron and zinc, and they say they are there is making them bioavailable. So clear goals. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? Who are we doing it for? Very clear. Progress to date. We are in the fifth. We are in the now. In the, we done. We are now in our fifth year. Um, we already have stacked product with all target traits. We have got all our molecular targets. Except vitamin A, it came late. We got the license from Segenta. We are using the same vitamin A that the Golden Rice Group have been using. You know, they started seven years before the project started. And uh, it took a while before Segenta could sort out the uh, IP issues. We already have it in a composite, all stacked in one loci. That means we've been inherited together. All these trees are in one. We already got a stack. We've done four field trials with the product, all in the United States. Costa Rica, Demoy, um, Hawaii. We have back cross in four African varieties. We have got greenhouse permit in South Africa, uh, contained few trials and uh, contained greenhouse studies work in South Africa and Kenya. We have done serious technology transfer capacity building, 10 scientists, postdocs, breeding, and what have been traded in America, they are back. Um, in, in Africa championing the projects, proof of concept, and we are forward planning are in progress for phase two. Phase two is now product development because to move to phase two, you must show, can you really do it? We started by saying, we can, under this challenge, come up with sorghum that has got the nutritional targets with vitamin A, 20 milligrams. Uh, with, we can get iron and zinc elevated by knocking down the phytic acid that holds these nutrients. 
we can increase ricin. By then, the proof of concept, there was only 50% ricin increase. We have hit over 100, 120 actually, but we're stabilizing at 100 so that we don't affect the green meeting uh, characteristics. And digestibility by reducing the phytic acid by cafferins reduction. We have hit that. Uh, without going to a lot of detail, let's say that we're really talking about food and people. We haven't yet taken this to people to eat because it's not yet gone through the regulatory. But we have started promoting sorghum as a crop across Africa because uh, uh, it's, it's, it has, because of the whole issue of uh, there are many areas where sorghum should be growing, where people are growing maize and the maize is not producing. So we started working bottom up, raising the importance of sorghum. Now, these are some of the products that finally we'll be able to move the ABS out, uh, which are sorghum-based products. Some in the market, but we believe that this will be for the supermarkets. But our main focus will be people like this. This family uh, depends on sorghum. And, and so these are the kind of people we are targeting who are not necessarily going to access these, but there'll be an opportunity for commercial, uh, commercial uh, production of, or use of sorghum as well. Now, the promise of, this, of the sorghum project, there are some promises. Uh, why are we doing it? We believe it will be able to produce, uh, to be able to, uh, uh, to counteract chronic malnutrition, like what you saw in Malawi, prevention of early child malnutrition, reduce risk of chronic diseases. There has been uh, studies to show that children who are early, early age, they are nourished or they have problem on nutrition, they don't develop their intellectual capacities properly. So we can enhance child mental capacity, reduce school dropouts, uh, child mortality as well by increasing child survival, especially in Malawi, that's clear. There are many, many, and, and also actually mothers dying during child birth because they are very chronically nourished uh, 21% of women dying during delivery in Malawi is associated also with this to a certain extent, but it's, I can't say it's proven, but we realize that in some countries it's also not just child dying, but the mother's dying as well if they're unhealthy and they're nourished. Uh, maternal health, reduced childbirth related to, to maternal death, and then immune and HIV, malaria, and other diseases, delayed onset of HIV AIDS, increase efficient efficacy and safety of RIV. If people are taking anti HIV AIDS and they are, they are, they are hungry, they are nourished, they, they go down faster. So when people are better nourished, they are able to take the, the ARVs treatment. And increase malaria survival rates. Malaria people are able to recover also if they are better nourished. So we're hoping that Projects like this, and as we are saying, Sogam is only one. There is the project in Cassava targeting the same, uh, where Professor John Bishi is working on with the Cassava team. There's another group working on banana, improving the banana nutrition, and there's the old golden rice group working in Asia. So there are several products, uh, several products targeting developing countries to tackle the areas of malnutrition. Also, when you look at Africa, uh, we have Different areas, crops are in different areas. For example, bananas grow in the tropical areas. Cassava grows in a different area. Sorghum grows in a dry area. So every crop is targeting a different population group. And uh, let me say that uh, the technology, again, is not a silver bullet. Malawi, as I'm saying now, is an example of a country which is turned around by good governance, or good politics and channeling food, uh, uh, subsidies and helping people to grow food and become uh, and be able to, to help themselves. So even if you have the technology, we still have to use the fertilizer, we have to use water, we have, we have good governance, we have to have a caring people. So there's a whole complex of things, but the science and technology will contribute. And we also know that even during Green Revolution, whatever was produced by Norman Bollock and the team, the high-yielding varieties of... of, of, of um, of wheat and rice, they contributed to the green revolution in Asia, but that's not all. They had to do irrigation, mechanization. They had to have good policies. They had to communicate, they had to educate the farmers. So the science can be catalytic. It adds value, it can contribute, but that's not all. There has to be more holistic approach. Uh, finally, let me show you some more short-term 
uh, goals, and I see the project, like the one I've described, is really important, long-term strategic research. So the banana is very important in the tropics, and it was child food for a long time. Children used to be brought up with bananas, but diseases and all that have caused a lot of loss. Banana constrained yield losses. Uh, this was some studies done, sub-Saharan Africa. If you look at the, the banana yield, we can do 45 tons per hectare. We're doing very little, average 10, 20 tons per hectare. And that's the loss, and these are the reasons. Pests and diseases take 30%, except um, South Africa, which is able to do commercial uh, large-scale production, and Cameroon is exporting, and, and South Africa, the less of the tropical Africa, the banana production is very low. Poor varieties, disease-infected material, poor agronomic practices, uh, depletion of nutrients. Many farmers don't believe that a banana needs fertilizer or manure. And of course, the unreliable and inadequate rainfall where bananas are planted, there's no management. So out of this, there's a lot of loss. So again, Africa harvests, in, we are involved in a, in a system, we're really changing system. Even management is not just planting the banana, but bringing management that if you can actually manage by removing all these heaps of suckers competing and have a good management, so all at once the nutrients, because the base of the banana is one, although you may have all these all are competing, so you can have all the energy going to one by removing this, and then add some manure, some management, as well as start with clean. So you can move from five tons to, we have stabilized now at 35 tons per hectare and 45 tons with water. Uh, no rocket science, but demonstrating now that it can be done. Now, the challenges and ask why is you have to have this value chain when you're dealing with smallholder farmers. You can't just tell them plant the banana. They need help, information, where you have clean seeds, the how to handle that. You need access to where the tissue culture labs are with the certified material. The smallholder farmers will not know. They need that information. Good agronomic practice. Uh, to unlock the value out of the quality material, post-harvest handling with the banana, you can lose 40% if there's no post-harvest handling and link to the market. After they eat, where do I sell the rest? So you need this kind of whole value chain, I call it extension. Other than if you just tell the farmers, plant the seeds and you leave them, you find the whole thing falls apart. There's no long-term sustainability. So Africa harvest have developed this what I call product, coho value chain. And we've been marking it vigorously. Other groups are taking it and realizing that's the way to help the smallholder farmers. Now, this is a tissue culture lab, and it can work for cassava, it can work for banana, it can work for sweet potato, whatsoever. <coughs> you need to start with the clean materials, which have no disease. That's the best IPM. Start with clean seeds. If you are dealing with vegetatively propagated crop, but even if you are dealing with the other seeds, you still need to have seeds without disease. Information. Someone had to reach out and talk and chair and explain the farmers. It doesn't happen otherwise. It's in an interactive way um, and, and share the information. So we spend about 30% of our time and money just getting information and getting a buy-in and education and training and so on. Sometimes is going where the farmers are. Take the classroom where the farmers are. The, the farmers are not going to come to an, an institution. You have to go where they are. Um, then sometimes you're doing gross margin analysis. Some of the farmers want to know, can I make money out of this compared to what I have? You don't ignore them. Gross margin analysis. They're very intelligent. Uh, then access to the seed rings. Where do I find the seeds? Uh, we have to have and, and take the seeds where the farmers are. During the planting season, as soon as the rainfall comes, they can access, uh, we say, um, at least not more than five, not more than two kilometers. There's a nursery where they can walk with a wheelbarrow or with what, collect the seeds and plant. Of course, the cell phone, the, the cell phone industry has really helped us, and FM radio stations, because we can get to thousands of farmers using the local radio, the cell phone industry is going fastest in Africa because there was no lad lines and it's a tool of trade. 
Before we used to drive out there, now we have got our field officers out there. We reach them and tell them this is where you access the material. And we are developing, um, um, we are developing broadcasting information. And not just for that, of course, this is accessing the information and sometimes tracking them to where the villages, where the, the seedlings can be taken to. Now, this is very innovative. Now, our, for example, this Africa Harvest Field Officers. Uh, each one is managing a very large area because they have the motorbikes. But more than that, they have got the cell phones. They also have cyber cafes. And we're taking the cyber cafes. Um, and, and, uh, and, and we also we have got uh, this mobilization, uh, mobilization of farmers into an area. So we're able to reach thousands of farmers within a, within a considerable time. Um, schools, children teaching their parents. Every school is a demonstration place because their school days, the children, once they learn, they train their, their, their parents on how to get to the schools and all that. So we are reaching out through schools. Our schools have demonstration plots. And uh, getting to the communities as well. All kinds of communities are interesting uh, having few days from a few days here we get politicians so they can actually support and come and uh, put some money into the technology as well as policies and as i said again the technology has to be proven it has to touch the people now once we we have this let's say the farmer one farmer has got 100 plant rates because of the uniformity, they have disease-free, good management, they normally come or return at the same time. That means you can make it to a small business. So that's the way we get the farmers out of poverty, because they are able to eat and they're able to sell and make money. And now they're accessing credits. The, the, the banks have now seen they can actually access the farmers' credits. So once they have this money and they're organized, then the, the banks are giving the farmers money. To, to invest, and they are keeping cows, they are goats, building stone houses, and coming out of the poverty, uh, the vicious poverty cycle. So, um, again, our marketing as are organized. We are accessing the supermarkets as well, where they can get high value. Uh, because of the group dynamics, uh, we also do an analysis. We have, for example, done uh, a good analysis to show the inputs, if you look, you see that to start with the tissue culture or the technology is high because the material comes from the lab, whereas the, the traditional circus were almost free or very retro. Uh, so that to start with, this is the help the farmer needs to access here. Um, but when you come to long-term uh, management, both the, 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 the tissue culture or the improved one is more or less the same. But you see, because of the vigor, because of the disease-free and good management, you, there's value in the technology. That's true, a technology value, because the starting, of course, is high, but you got almost 10 years. You've got orchards going on for over 10 years, still producing 45 kilos of banana over time. So there is, this, this, is a, this, is, this is a contribution of the technology, everything else being equal. Um, we had... Um, Professor Sharia, an economist, to come and do an analysis comparing, uh, looking at the economic impact of the TC banana over 10 years. And the figures are very clear that technology can make a difference um, to the farmers. And we have farmers who are really living at the $1 a day, absolutely poor, and they're out of poverty now, uh, 3 to 5 to $6 a day, a proven track record of delivery. And because of that, this project here, here last year, I was awarded YALA Global Award. I went to Oslo to receive the award. It came with a diploma, 100,000 US dollars, and a few other things. And of course, we went and celebrated with the farmers and everybody and chaired and were all very happy. Um, development partners, we acknowledge Africa Harvest. We have had funding from Bill and Marina Gates Foundation, Alliance for Green Revolution, CropLife, DuPont, Rockefeller Foundation, USAID, and several other donors. And the organization is still growing, and, uh, and we really acknowledge the people who have been, who believed in us to support us. Uh, collaborating partners, we have many collaborating partners. 
because we believe the way forward is working with other partners. As you can see, there are many international, uh, local, and the way forward is networking. And uh, we'll be happy to work with the University of Bath as well. Thank you.